You're listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. In a recent conversation with my brother, I asked if high school was as fun as an experience as I remember it. Now, he was a good person to ask because he was there. We're twins, after all. He looked at me and matter-of-factly said, No, Aaron, it wasn't. It was terrible. You know, I knew he was right. But somehow in my mind, it plays like a John Hughes film. It was just magical. Maybe you can relate. You see, we often remember things differently than the way they actually happened. And this doesn't just happen to us as individuals, but it happens to us collectively as humans. There's a phenomenon that has recently made headlines known as the Mandela Effect. This phenomenon occurs when a large group of people remember an event or detail about something in history that never actually occurred or even existed. Writer and researcher Fiona Broom coined the term over a decade ago when she created a website detailing her recollections of former South African President Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the 80s. The problem is that Nelson Mandela didn't die in prison in the 80s. Instead, he served 27 years in prison, and upon his release, he became the president of South Africa from 1994 to 1999. He didn't die until 2013. But Fiona swears she remembers watching international news coverage in the 80s of his passing, and other people remember it with her. This phenomenon sounds bizarre, but it's actually affected most of us in some way. I remember as a child loving it when my mom would bring home Jiffy peanut butter instead of Kraft. We just loved Jiffy. It was just so smooth. It was amazing. It was delicious. But Jiffy peanut butter never existed. Jiff peanut butter did. But I remember Jiffy peanut butter. Here's another one. You you may remember uh, reading the Berenstein Bears books, whether as a child or to your children. Um, The Berenstein Bear books were written by the Berensteins. Actually, no, it was the Berenstain Bears written by the Berenstains. Maybe you recall the Monopoly Man. Remember, he's got that top hat, that monocle and the cane. No, he doesn't have a monocle and he has no cane. There are so many examples of the Mandela effect, and many conspiracy theorists surmise that it's evidence that we live in a multiverse, that multiple universes exist simultaneously. Or maybe it points to string theory, which is a similar idea. But psychology actually explains a lot of why we experience the Mandela effect. In its simplest form, we just don't actually remember things as they happen. Instead, we often remember things through the filter of our experiences and the thinking at the time. In other words, we miss a lot, and our mind fills in the blanks. And instead of finding this troubling, I actually am encouraged by this, especially in the area of my faith. You see, many of us, um, we think that we we see things so well in the moment, but I, I have found that often I see things better in retrospect. Culture has an um, expression for this, that hindsight is twenty twenty, and in some ways that may be true. In some ways, because of the Mandela effect, maybe it isn't so true. But someone once told me that there are two times where we can best experience the presence of God. The first is in the present moment, right here, right now. And the second is upon careful reflection of our past.
of our personal history. Now, I find this to be very helpful for when I'm desperate for signs of life in my soul. When the despair of life and the problems that I accumulate are overwhelming, and I just need a glimpse of God to keep pushing on, to let me know that I'm not alone, that I'm seen, that I'm heard. But the challenge of finding God in the present moment is that the present moment is sometimes really difficult. And I'm not actually just seeing clearly and definitely not seeing the big picture. And the weight of stress or worry or sadness often distorts how I'm perceiving all that's going on in my life. But if I could just separate myself from the troubles that weigh me down, I might catch a glimpse of God all around me. This is what Mark Nepo means when he writes that it's the fullness of our attention to whatever is near that has birds fly out of God's mouth. But sometimes we're too in the weeds to see the miracle of a synchronistic flock of barn swallows shouting to us from the sky that we're loved, that we're seen. And that's where that second opportunity to experience God's presence is very helpful. But what is meant by reflection? What is meant by looking back? To help us with this idea, I'm going to draw from two separate Old Testament stories. And the fact that I'm drawing our attention to find strength from two stories three to six thousand years old is already meta. We're finding the answer to our dilemma on what is reflection by reflecting. The first story I want to share is from Psalm uh, uh, Psalm of David, uh, number 13. David is a young man um, whose life was filled with adventure as well as stress and catastrophe. We learn more about David's psychology than any other character in the Bible because we get to read some of his most intimate feelings through the Psalms, through his journaling. And at first glance, if the only information we ever got about David was from reading his Psalms, his songs, his poems, we would safely assume that this was a young man who lived a very tumultuous life. There are many highs for sure, but the lows, undeniable. And he wrote about them all as psalms, as prayers, as songs to God. Here's one of my favorites. It's from Psalm 13. I'm trying to imagine the kind of day he had that got him, prompted him to write this. How long, God, will you forget me? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long? How long will you allow my enemy to triumph over me? Look on me, God. Answer me. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death and my enemy will say I have overcome him. My foes will rejoice when I fall. But God, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your liberation and I will sing of your praise because you have been good to me. Wow, like David, I too have found myself asking the question, where are you, God? I've had a day like this. Maybe you have too. I read this psalm and I have no idea what was happening in his life, but I think it's a safe assumption that he's desperate. Searching for evidence of God's presence, of God's love, of God's direction. And David keeps coming up empty. And it isn't because God isn't there. It's that the collective weight of all that he's experiencing is louder than the presence of that which holds all things together. It's also about what has our attention in moments like this. Consider this thought. Is it possible that the reason we can ask to begin with, why is God 
absent is because at some point we felt that he was present. That is to say that at some other point in our lives, we most likely felt God when life was better and his presence was the atmosphere we were breathing, so it seemed. The ancient poet David sure had lots of moments like this in his life. I mean, he was the king of the nation of Israel, selected when he was a young boy. He was the youngest child of a large family. It would be a long journey towards the throne for this young um, teenager. And we can read about that journey through not just the histories recorded of his life, but also through his music, through the Psalms that he wrote during that time. And the Psalms actually give us a better picture of his life than the histories recorded of his life. David felt lost. David felt alone. He felt apart, distant, forgotten from God, at least in this moment. There were other times he felt embraced, he felt seen for sure, but in this moment, on this day, how long, God, he writes, how long will you hide your face from me? How long will I have this sorrow? I am being defeated. Answer me, God, or I will sleep in death. And then towards the end of this psalm, there's this but. But I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your liberation, he writes, and I will sing of your goodness because you, you have been good to me. I trust in your unfailing love because you have been good. There's something that David in his pain teaches me about my own. That in those times when I can't find God in the present, that maybe I should remember that he's been in my past. Now, I don't know what's been resolved between verses 4 and 5. What happens between my enemies will rejoice in my demise and I trust you, O God. There's a space there and I don't know what happened. Maybe David fell asleep, got up the next day and finished the psalm feeling better. I don't know. We don't know. But something happened. It seems that but happened. But, a caveat, a suspension of the emotional, a change of heart, faith happened, trust happened. David says, I will trust in your unfailing love. There's intention behind that word. He's choosing something here. He's not just reacting to how he feels. He's choosing. He's making a statement, hoping his feelings catch up. You have been good to me, he says. This is a reflective moment. In the middle of all the chaos of his life, he remembers, hey, God has never left me nor abandoned me. And David says, I will trust you with my present because I have found you in my past. I can trust in your unfailing love. Why? Because you have past tense. You have been good to me. Now, if you need a definition of faith, here it is. I will trust you in the present in spite of any evidence you're here because looking backwards, I see you. I see you. God is like the wind. Jesus says so. You cannot see it, but you can see it move through things. I speak to a lot of people who can't find God in their current situation, largely because it's miserable or difficult. And there are times I can relate. Maybe you can too. And helping them search for God helps me find Him in my own life. It's an amazing experience. Finally, I think Moses offers us a glimpse as well of how important looking back can be in trying to find strength to move forward. Moses is an equally important figure in Jewish spirituality. And when God wanted Moses to lead the people of Israel to a land promised to their ancient forefather Abram in a vision, Moses struggled. 
The task was massive. He was ill-equipped. It just was just too incomprehensible. Here he was tending sheep. You know, uh, he'd grown up in Egypt. He was the prince. Everything, you know, seemed great until it wasn't. And then he, he ran, finds himself on the side of a mountain watching sheep. And he sees that burning bush. You may remember the story. And then we find him leading this group of people out of Egypt to the Red Sea and then beyond in the search of the land of milk and honey. What a story. It's an incredible story. And, and we, we pick up on this as the writer tells us about Moses' life. All that time later, after this journey through the wilderness in Exodus chapter 33, we find this whole group of people, this multitude encamped by this, this Mount Sinai. And Moses looks at all these people and just feels so unprepared, so ill-equipped. And so he, he wanders to the edge of this encampment where there's a tent. And in this tent, he sits and waits, talks to God and waits to hear what God might say and give him direction. And this story tells us that we find Moses just struggling with it all finding himself in this tent, and he just pleads with God. Now, I think it's important for us to remember that here's a man who's just witnessed so many unbelievable things in his life up to this moment. He's experienced so many crazy things, yet in this moment he doubts. He doubts. This is important because doubt comes for us all again and again and again. It's not our enemy. It's what makes faith so real. Because we've had the contrast of doubt. We have those moments when belief has been hard to do, but faith is what allows us to believe that the story is better than we can believe or perceive. Faith and doubt are two sides of the same coin. And Moses in this moment isn't being weak. He's being honest. And after all, honesty is one of the most highest of virtues. And he says to God, he pleads, he says, God, here's the deal. Unless I feel your presence Go with us as we continue to move through this desert. Don't even bother. I'm done. I just can't do it. And he begs to see God's face, the writer tells us. Now, the Hebrew word for face literally means presence. He wants to feel God's presence. This is a do or die moment for him. We've all had those. Maybe you're in one. And Moses is just begging again to experience God's presence. He's seen fire from heaven, the waters of the Red Sea part. He's seen water spring from a rock, the infamous burning bush. But in this moment, none of that's enough. He doesn't want amazing. He wants comfort. He just wants the comfort of God's presence right now. And so he begs to see God's face. Exodus chapter 33, verse 21 records it this way. God responds to Moses by saying, okay, Moses, here's the deal. Beside you is Mount Sinai. There's a place at the top where you may stand on a rock. I'm going to allow my glory to pass by you. And I will put you into a cleft in this rock and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face cannot be seen. Now this is a very anthropomorphic scene. God's described as having human form, a face, and hands. Now, we understand in Jewish spirituality, God has no face, no hands, no, no form. This is a way of us understanding uh, the incomprehensible. It's a literary device helping us perceive something. 
Rabbi Lawrence Kushner helps us by correcting our English translation of this story and reminds us that the ancient Hebrew word used in the story for God's back is akorai. The word is better understood not as God's backside, but as God's afterward. Now, the English translation is poor, that's why backside seems easier, but it misses the deeper meaning here. Rabbi Kushner teaches that God seems to be saying to Moses, listen, you are unable to experience my presence, but instead can only experience what it's like after my presence has been somewhere. In other words, Moses, you can't see all I'm up to in the present moment. So look to where I've been. Look where I've been. Moses is struggling to feel any sense that God is active in the current moment. He was asking to see the presence of the divine at work in the chaos. But it's like God says to Moses, if I show you all the possibilities that exist in this present moment, if you could see the sheer potential that exists in this moment, you wouldn't be able to survive. The glory that would be revealed would literally melt your brain. (laughs) No, Moses, you cannot see all that I'm up to in the here and now, because it's just too much for any mortal. But here's the promise. In the moments when you cannot see where I am, Moses, look to where I've been. For me, this causes me to scour my journals, to ask my friends to find them in my story, in my life. Maybe it's just because I've been too close to my pain, to my struggles, that I I just can't see God, signs of life. Maybe I just can't, but I just need to get to the the but, like David. Oh, but if I could, if you can, get to the place where you can trust in His unfailing love because you can look back and somehow see that God has been good to you. You can see these moments, these glimpses, where... Man, it was just, the presence of God was undeniable. I was recently meeting with somebody who had kind of given up on faith. COVID hasn't been easy for a lot of people. The communal nature of faith has been largely disrupted. And that isolation has been devastating for so many. And they said to me, I just don't feel God anymore. Not like I did. And I asked them if they think God has changed. Or perhaps maybe they have. The answer was in the question. So I challenged them with the same thought I'm challenging you with at the beginning of my message. If you don't believe you can feel God in your life, is it safe to assume that there was a time when you did? And if so, do you think that God has changed? Or is it us? Truthfully, I've discovered that the most spiritual moments in my life haven't been when God shows up, because God never left. Instead, the most spiritual moments are when I awaken to what's already here, what's already been. When the current problems of our lives or of the world seem like too much, I'm reminded, I'm encouraged that God is like the wind. You can't see it, but you can see where it's been. And as I watch the trees blow, sometimes that very act of looking back helps me be right where I am.